Well, good morning. It is a delight to be back with you this morning. I do want to thank you on behalf of myself and my family for six weeks off of uh, touring this wonderful country with my family, a six-week sabbatical. It was a great blessing to me, and uh, many of you have asked uh, for, uh, for an update, and I, I, I hope to be able to share just a little bit of what God was doing in, in our lives. We're going to wait till next week to do that, if that's okay with you. We, of course, have a lot to do today, and it's, of course, as Pastor Josh has already let us know, it is a great and glorious day for our church. Indeed, uh, even in, in praising God with you, I'm reminded that we have a great and glorious God, do we not? And I'm so delighted to be able to be here and to uh, preach uh, God's word to you by his grace. I will tell you that uh, while we were away for those uh, six weeks and, and spending most of them uh, sleeping in tents and setting up and taking down on air mattresses and so forth, and that could get, you know, that could wear you down a little bit. And we did get to grow a little homesick, but I'll tell you the thing that we missed the most, and this is not preacher talk, this is actually true. Um, the thing we missed the most was not, not our beds, and it was not mama's cooking and, and all the rest. It was our church. And uh, that's not only true for me and Allegra, it was true for my children as well. And what a great blessing it is as a dad to have kids who long to be with God's people and go to church. And I'm so thankful for that, and we ought not to take that for granted. So praise God, I'm happy to be back here with you. Please, uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians this morning. Uh, Colossians chapter 4 will be the text we're considering. You might recall that we were studying the book of Colossians prior uh, to my departure this summer. You'll find that on page 985 in the Pew Bible if you want to uh, use the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to take that Bible with you. And while you're finding your way to Colossians 4, I just want to add my voice to Pastor Josh's and uh, welcome our brother uh, Tim White here and his uh, wife Sherry from Winchester Baptist Church. I do so simply because Tim has been a great blessing to me over the past eight and a half years, and uh, he has been um, a brother to whom I have leaned upon and considered his counsel and his exhortation. And Tim, I love you. I'm thankful for you. And I'm thankful in particular on this day for your role in seeing that Lovettsville Baptist Church, this dream that we've had, and I know you've had, brother, actually comes to be, and uh, your role is no small thing, and, and we thank God for you, brother. Uh, you're welcome here. And so here we are now in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. It's my honor to invite you to hear now the word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Shall we pray now? Our Father, we're thankful for your word that we can consider. We simply want to know Christ more. We want to draw closer to you through your word. We believe that this book, this ancient letter that is written, called Colossians, is actually your word, the, the word of the one true God. We believe it has been preserved, passed down, and now is, is open upon this pulpit and in our laps because you want to speak to us through it. We believe you do that through your spirit and the faithful preaching of your word, and so we simply ask you, please come and speak. 
we, we pray as we like to do here often, as Samuel taught us long ago. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on April 2nd, uh, 1739, that marked a very important day in the history of the English-speaking church. For on that day was the first sermon that a man named John Wesley would preach in the open air, outside. He preached a, an evangelistic message to a large crowd. Now, I, I, I mentioned that's an important day because prior to that sermon, uh, Wesley was adamantly opposed to open-air preaching. Um, he was an Anglican uh, priest, and as his high churchman, he thought outdoor preaching, I quote him, to be a vile practice. Um, he would write uh, in his journal after he preached a sermon, I could scarce reconcile myself to the strange way of preaching in the fields, having all my life so ten- uh, having been all my life so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought it thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had been done outside the church. However, his good friend George Whitfield, of course, who we know in American history, persuaded Wesley to preach uh, outdoors that it was a worthwhile pursuit. And so on April 1739 in Bristol, Wesley gave his first open-air sermon. He would write of that event saying, at four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a ground to about 3,000 people. Uh, He quickly began to understand the benefit of open-air preaching. He understood that this now would permit him to address uh, congregations, crowds far larger than a building could hold. And on one occasion in particular, he arrived to preach, actually in the building, uh, behind his father's pulpit, his father's old church. His father had died. He went to his father's old church, was hoping to be able to preach a sermon there. The rector barred him from preaching in his father's pulpit, so he went outside in their cemetery and stood upon his father's headstone and preached a sermon to the gathered crowd. He would travel over thousands of miles by horseback. John Wesley preached over 20,000 sermons and uh, God using him to launch what even secular historians call the Great Awakening in England. Well, after this first sermon, two months later, Wesley would famously write these famous words from John Wesley, I look upon the whole world as my parish. The whole world. He's come to recognize that the gospel is for the world. Seems to me that this man of God has a bit of Paul's heart in him. After all, what does Paul say here in verse 3? At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul ends his letter to Colossians saying, I want to make Jesus known. I want to declare the gospel. That's my mission. And I remind you today, followers of Christ, it is your mission as well. After all, our Lord, prior to ascending to heaven, did, not, did he not tell us to go and make disciples of all nations? Did he not say to us, you shall be my witnesses? Has he not promised us, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? One pastor has explained Christianity is a soul-winning, outreaching, mind-persuading, heart-entreating, rescuing faith, or it is not true Christianity. And because of, of this truth, that we are on a mission to spread the gospel, that today we will send out 28 
of our members, a little over 10% of the membership of Hamilton Baptist Church to plant a new church, Lovettsville Baptist Church, in order that there might be a gospel witnessing community in the growing town of Lovettsville. And I, I believe, therefore, that today, August 22nd, 2021, marks a, a, a monumental day in the 132-year history of this congregation called Hamilton Baptist Church. I think in many ways, this is a, not only a defining moment for us today, but my prayer and the elders' prayer is that it will be a defining moment as it leads us into the future. So let me simply remind you that it was in April of 1889 when a little Baptist church called Catoctin Baptist Church in North of Percival sent about 12 of their members to a little town called Hamilton and said, you're going to start a church there. And that is how we came to be 132 years ago. In fact, every church that has ever been at some point, a group of people said, we are going to start a church here, every church of the hundreds of thousands of churches, every single one of them started with a group of pioneers that said we're going to begin a new work, a fresh work, just like many of you are going to do today. Of course, we don't do this because it's easy. It's not easy. It's far easier for you to stay here. I mean, this is a wonderful place, isn't it? It's not easy. It's not it's not easy for our bottom line. It's not easy for our prestige. It's not easy for us relationally. We are going to lose very important and, uh, members of our church who do incredible ministries. We're going to lose brothers and sisters we love who, as of this evening, will no longer be members of Hamilton Baptist Church, but will actually be a, a new church. We're going to lose a, a beloved pastor and, and, and two of our elders and their families are leaving. You say, well, I, then should we do this? How in the world would anybody do this? It's like a self-inflicted wound. We do it because we believe that Jesus said, go and make disciples. That is what we are here to do. And so I tell you, who will form Lovettsville Baptist Church tonight, as you go to start this church, or you, the 90% of you who remain here at Hamilton Baptist Church, let us recommit ourselves to the commission given to us by our king. Right? Because how easy is it for us little by little by little to get off track, to, to become dull and callous to the condition of the lost and the calling of our God. And so Paul comes to us in Colossians 4 and he blasts the trumpet for us. He says, wake from your slumber, it's the alarm. <laughs> wake up, there's a mission to do. And he calls us here to carry out the commission. He does so in two ways. It seems to me that Paul calls for us to pray and Paul calls for us to persuade. In verses 5 through 6, we, he begins to talk about our witness. That is, we need to talk to people about God. In verses 2 through 4, he talks about prayer. That is, we need to talk to God about people. Those will be the outline of our sermon this morning. Talk to God about people. Verses 2 through 4, talk to people about God. Verses 5 through 6. So we begin by seeing that he tells us we need to talk to God about, uh, talk to God about people, that we should pray to God. Notice it says there in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. More on that later. At the same time, pray also for us, he says. I want you to pray for us. Paul's requesting prayer from them. And he's going to ask them to pray for two things. So what does Paul want them to pray for? Two things. 
They, both things begin with the word that. And so you can see this here that might help you. At the same time, verse 3 I'm looking at. Pray also for us that, there's the first one, God may open to us a door for the word. And you'll see in verse 4, that I may make it clear. So those are the two things he's asking for. The first being an open door. Pray that God would open to us a door. Now the Bible actually uses this imagery elsewhere. For instance, in Acts 14, we read of in Antioch that uh, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 16, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. And so in the biblical language, an open door is an opportunity which the Lord himself creates for the gospel to be heard. All right, it might be a change in someone's circumstances. It might be a softening of someone's heart. Whatever it is, there was a door that was once closed, a door that was once locked, a door that was barred, and God opens it. God does that. Paul says that's what God does. And he, he creates these openings, and he does so in response to prayer. That's why he says, pray for me also, what? That God would open a door for us. Therefore, what must we do as God's people? We must pray. We must pray that God would blow the door off the hinges in Lovettsville, right? And in Hamilton, and in Percival, and in Winchester. God opened doors. Doors are barred to us. Will you not knock them off their hinges so that the, the, the gospel may, may come into them? See, the key in Paul's mind, evidently, this great evangelist, is that the gospel's impact will be, in part at least, in response to the faithfulness of God's people to pray. Right? And in fact, I, I, I find it interesting that Paul is using this imagery. He could have used other imagery, certainly, but he uses the imagery of God opening a door while he's in prison. Isn't that not interesting? Read on in verse 3. He says that God may open to us a door to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Right? So you expect if Paul wanted any door to be open, it would be the one from which he, behind he's locked. Right? Open that door. And yet, it seems to me that to Paul, his freedom is not his priority. As long as he's free to preach the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning, you're, you're not a Christian. And we're delighted that you are here. You're welcome anytime we gather. Thankful for being here. Hope you feel welcome. I wonder uh, if there is anything, any belief you have that you would be willing to go to prison for. Or uh, is there any belief that you hold that after being sent to prison for it, you would still prioritize over your freedom? I wonder if there's anything in your heart like that. I think that's probably a good question for Christians too, isn't it? Do you prioritize the gospel over your freedom? Or we might say the gospel over your leisure, perhaps might be more appropriate for us. Of course, uh, you know, Paul says, listen, I'm in prison, you and I aren't in prison, chances are we won't go to prison, God willing. But I wonder if our life would, would be different if, if our heart resembled more what we see Paul explaining here. Uh, maybe, maybe you're not locked in prison, but maybe you're locked behind a door of difficulty. Maybe you're chained to a trial. Do we, in those times, do you even think about the advance of the gospel and your role in it? Because I think, I think maybe sometimes we, we think, well, when, when times are good, I'll serve the Lord. When times are good, I'll be vocal about my faith. 
but, you know, certainly I can't be expected to do so now in the light of the circumstances in which I'm facing. Now's, now, above all times, is the time for me to focus on me. I, I need to get me better. I need to get out of this situation. But that doesn't seem to be the path that Paul's walking. He's in prison and says, no, I still want the gospel. That's still what I long for. I wonder when sickness strikes, do you pray, God, will you not open a door to family and the doctors as I show that my hope is primarily in something more than my physical well-being? Maybe a high school student, when you don't make the team, and you feel that crushing weight of that, I wonder if you ever think, God, will you not open the door as I show my classmates that my identity is chiefly in Christ and not my athletic ability? Adults, when you, when you job doesn't come through, I wonder, do you ever pray, God, will you open the door as you bring me someplace that I, to be honest, I'd rather not go? Paul's in prison, and he still believes, even in this setback, the gospel has opportunities, if God will open the door. Of course, that's not all he asks for. You notice he has a second request. It's found there in verse 4, as I already mentioned. He says, pray that I may make it clear, this is how I ought to speak. And so he, he comes and, and says that, that I, I want to have a clear gospel presentation. Right? I want to be clear in speaking about the gospel. In, in my public teaching, Paul undoubtedly would be thinking, but also in personal conversations, right? We want to be clear about the gospel. We want it to be understood. And you, you can see how both these are necessary, aren't they? God must open the door and someone has to walk through the door with the gospel. Because if the door remains closed, it doesn't matter how effective the witness is. But if, but if it doesn't matter uh, if the door, the, excuse me, if it doesn't matter if the door is open, if the witness actually won't enter through. Right? Or be clear. And therefore, what Paul says, I need you to pray for both of these things. Will you pray for me, he says. Comes to the end of his letter and says, I, I need you to pray. And by the way, just remind you, this is the Apostle Paul who's saying this. That's somewhat stunning, isn't it? When you think about it. He is undoubtedly, other than Jesus, the greatest preacher ever to live. He is certainly the greatest missionary ever to live. The greatest church planner ever to live. And he says, the effectiveness of my preaching is dependent upon the prayers of this church that may be about 25 people strong. That's stunning to me. And if that's true for Paul, how much more true is it for our brother Cody? And how much more true is it for me, and for Tim, and for all of you? Right? God help us if we put our confidence in our own giftedness. And not in the saving power of God. It is Jesus who, in speaking about salvation, says, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Paul would add, therefore, we must pray. We must pray. In order to make the gospel clear, he says, after all, it's a mystery. You notice how he describes the gospel. That interesting language, doesn't he, to declare the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. He calls it a mystery not because it's like a riddle that we have to figure out. He calls it a mystery because it's something that no one could have put together unless God revealed it to him. Of course, he did so in Jesus. Right? No one would have ever, I mean, listen, the gospel, you understand, is that Jesus, who is the second person of a triune God, became a man. And, and as a man, he, he lived an entire uh, human life here upon this earth and did so in perfect obedience and love. And at the end of that very short life, he was murdered 
by, by both his people and the world. And yet in that murder of Jesus, the Son of God, he actually is bearing the wrath of God upon himself, not for his own sin, for he had none, but upon those who would trust in him, upon sinners. And, and he was killed bearing the wrath of God for sinners, and yet three days later, he rose from the dead historically and physically and bodily and appeared for 40 days to more than 500 people. And then he ascended into heaven, but he announced prior to his ascension that you might be made right with God, you might be forgiven by a holy God, he might wash you clean of all your debt which you have accumulated against him, not by your religious acts, but if you simply would bow your knee to Jesus in faith and receive him as your Lord. And those who do are united in one body across this world. Doesn't matter what color your skin is or what language you speak or how educated you are and all the rest that we're all put together. In fact, he comes and he sends his spirit within us that we might be the dwelling place of God. And I, I'll tell you, who would have ever thought of such a thing? Who would ever come up with that? No one. No one. Unless God reveals it. It's a mystery. It's the mystery of Christ. It's been hidden for ages. But now it's revealed to the world. That's our job, Christian. To make clear the mystery of Jesus Christ. And, and, and I seek even now to reveal it to you. Those who do not know Christ, I tell you, based upon the authority of God's word, if you were to trust in Jesus, if you were to yield your life to him as your king, believing he died for your sin and rose from the dead, that you will be forgiven by a holy God of all sin you've ever committed, that you are currently commit, or every sin that you will commit, and will be welcomed into his kingdom when either you die or Christ returns for you. Right now, you can pray to him and surrender to your creator and king and resurrected Lord. And you would be saved. That's the mystery of Christ. And Paul, Paul says, I, I want you to pray for us. He entreats this Colossian church. Will you pray that this happens? I ask you, Hamilton Baptist Church. I ask you, Lovettsville Baptist Church. Do you pray like this? Is this what you pray for? Do you pray for this work? Open doors and clear proclamation. It was in the 19th century when a powerful work was, of God was uh, taking place in a particular mission station in inland China. It's a number of mission stations, they're all doing good work, but one station was having this incredible fruitful ministry. You of course know the famous pioneering missionary Hudson Taylor oversaw all these mission stations, and he could not figure out why this one station was, was having all this fruitfulness and other, others were not until he went home to England. And after speaking at a conference, a man came up and introduced himself uh, to Hudson Taylor. And they began to have a conversation. And Taylor uh, realized, man, this individual sure knows a lot about what's happening in this particular place in China, all the way here in England in the middle of the 19th century. And so Taylor asked him, how is it that you are so conversant with the conditions of that work? The man responded, oh, the missionary there and I are old college mates. For years we have regularly corresponded, and he has sent me the name of all inquirers and converts, and these I have daily taken to God in prayer. Beloved Phil Baptist Church, I pray this is who you are. A praying people, asking for open doors and for the strength to walk through them. I pray that's what you would give yourself to.
This is what Paul tells us to pray. Briefly, he tells us how to pray. All right, the what and the how of this evangelistic prayer. Look in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Your prayers are to be steadfast. There's to be a devotion, a commitment. It's not to be casual or sporadic. This kind of prayer was the continual ministry of the church in Acts. I refer you to Acts 1, before the church was even born, we read, these all were with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. Immediately thereafter, the church was born. Once the church was born, we read this, the first description of the church, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer, and that ministry continued. Being steadfast means you don't give up. It means you're not forgetful. It's part of your life as a church, is you're steadfast in prayer. I pray this would be true of Lovett's Hill Baptist Church, as I pray it would be true of Hamilton Baptist Church. In fact, if, if, I, if God were to come to me this afternoon and say, Stephen, I'm going to grant you one wish about your church. What one thing would you like to see happen in your church? I undoubtedly, without even thinking about it, would say, I would pray, I would ask you, God, to make us a praying people. I would ask you to make us desperate for you and dependent upon you, and we would express both those truths through prayer. I would ask that when people talk, hey, tell me about Hamilton Baptist Church. Maybe you have five words to describe this church. One of those five words would be, they are prayers there in Hamilton Baptist Church. I think if God were to truly bless us, we would first have to continue and give ourselves, I would say, to steadfast prayer. Prayer steadfastly, watchfully, he says there. Interesting enough, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. The image of my mind is a sentry outside the camp, you know, knowing that if he dozes off, the enemy might come and attack and um, defeat them. A sentry, watchful, alert, right? It's kind of like when you remember you're, you're sometimes you fall asleep, you're dead asleep in the middle of the night, you hear a big, big clang, something, big noise downstairs, right? And what do you do? You, you're instantly awake, right? You sit up, you look to your spouse, what was that, right? What's going on? Do you go back to sleep? Uh, I figure I'll check it out in the morning. No, you send your wife down there, right? Uh, do, uh, <laughs> hey, babe, it's your turn. Huh? Right? You're alert. Paul says you need to be watchful in prayer. Well, when Jesus gathered his apostles there, the three of them in, in Gethsemane, and he said, listen, I'm going to go pray just a little bit farther, but this is what I need you to do. I need you to watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. Watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. Of course, they didn't either. And therefore, they fell into the temptation which Jesus had had warned them of. You need to be alert in your prayer, aware of, of the temptations in this world and the challenges in which we face. Paul says, don't forget that God's given you a weapon to wage in this war. It's called prayer and be watchful in it. Thirdly, we are to pray thankfully. This, if you're keeping track in our study of Colossians, is the seventh time Paul has exhorted us to gratitude. And, and I think he's doing so to, when he says pray thankfully because he simply doesn't want you to be resolved to this. I don't want you to leave here this morning and think, okay, I have to add one more thing to my list as a Christian. I need to pray now. I don't think that's what the Bible is exhorting us. I think we would do this steadfastly and watchfully and faithfully if we were more thankful to God in our hearts. That, that is, I think we would pray more regularly for open doors of faith for other people's life if we more frequently remember that God opened a door in your life. And that we would pray God, that there would be a clear witness in people's life if you rejoice more that God sent someone to you to give you that witness. If you're not thankful for your own salvation, you're going to find no inner compulsion to pray for the salvation of other people. And so let us remember with joy how he saved you. That you might find a zeal rising in your heart that he might save others. I pray that this would be characteristic of both our churches.
in particular, Love It's Hill Baptist Church, please do not get caught up in all the planning and the preparation and the strategy and neglect to pray because it will all be meaningless unless God works through you. And God has told us in his word, he's determined to work in response to prayer. I love the stories of Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher some 100 or 200 years ago. Um, he pastored in a little town called Dundee in Scotland. Had a very small church. And at the same time, in his 20s, Robert Murray McShane was conversational in Hebrew, read his Bible in Greek, and kept his daily diary in Latin. He was a genius, and he frequently, almost on a monthly basis, had invitations from other churches to come and be their pastor. He would never leave his little country church in Dundee for this one reason. He said, no one will pray like my people in Dundee. I don't care how big your church is, how powerful the preaching is, how wealthy that church is, how many books your pastor writes or whatever it might be, I'll take a praying people every time. Let us talk to God about people. Of course, we must also talk to people about God, which is our second point this morning, and I trust I'll be briefer here. We see in verse 5 that Paul says, conduct yourself wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Now, Paul begins to uh, address our interaction with those outside of Christ, those outside the church. He says, okay, if we're praying, I need you to pray, but you're also going to be bumping into outsiders. And as you do, he says, you need to make the best use of your time with the outsiders. And if you have the King James Version this morning, or even the American Standard Version, I like that translation. He tells us to redeem the time. To redeem, that is to buy up the time. What Paul, I think, is telling us is that we need to be on the lookout for unique opportunities. And when we see those opportunities, we need to buy them up. We need to redeem them. You're in the car with somebody, and they begin to speak about their dreams. You say, buy that, buy that up. That's a good moment, right? You know, there's a crisis in somebody's life, and they begin to tell you about your, their fears. Paul says, buy that up. Buy that moment. Go out and purchase that. It's going to cost you something. There is no doubt. It will cost you to do this. But buy it. Redeem it. Right? I, I, there's a, a member of our church who was recently at a doctor's office, and she was talking to the tech at that doctor's office and, and just making small talk, and the tech says, you know, I've been, I've been reading a lot th uh, these past months, and this person says to her, well, what have you been reading? She says, well, actually, I've been reading the Bible, and I don't understand any of it. And this member of the church says, well, I like to read the Bible too, right? Would you like to get breakfast, and we can read the Bible together? And that person said, I would love to get breakfast and read the Bible. And they've been reading the Bible every week, going through Gospel of Luke right now, every week, meeting at a local diner as this non-believers, meeting with a member of our church, right? Simply because that member of our church had the wherewithal, saw an opportunity and bought it up, right? There are opportunities all around us. We need to be looking for them like a hunter in a tree stand, just searching for those opportunities. Who, who can I proclaim Christ to? Who can I serve? Who can I love? Who can I be encouraged? Who, uh, uh, who can I care for? Right, listen, Lovettsville's a growing town. That's why you're going there. Right, 10 years ago, there's 300 people in Lovettsville. Now there's 3,000 people. Everybody's moving to Lovettsville. This is, uh, this is a place to be, evidently. Right, they're all going to Lovettsville. Right, but they don't know anyone. They have no family. They have no friends. They have no community. They know two people, Siri and Alexa, okay? That's it. Those are their two friends, okay? 
They are alone. You have incredible opportunities to get to know people. Cody and his family's already moved to Lovettsville, and uh, they bumped into a neighbor. One of the questions Cody asked his neighbor says, well, do you know the other neighbors? And he says, no, I've been living here for years. I know not a single neighbor. So you have to be looking for those opportunities. Wait till they take the garbage out, right? Be peering through the blinds and just, right, okay? <laughs> Not with binoculars, don't be creepy, right? And go, hey, how are you? How's your day? We're out walking the dog? Yeah, right? Go get a dog so you could do evangelism, right? You know, take the dog out and, and get to know people, right? Redeem the time. Redeem your neighbors. Redeem the opportunities you have. And I'll even exhort Hamilton Baptist Church as well. We need to be doing this. And I'll tell you, sometimes non-believers come to our church. You understand that? And, and you know how we all kind of hang out in the foyer after service? Do you ever see, like, a couple people, and they're just kind of standing with their back to the wall all by themselves, their visitors? Do you ever wonder why they're doing that? It's not so the husband can talk to the wife. They could do that in the car. They are looking to meet people. And that is your cue to go up and talk to them. Hi, my name's Stephen. What's your name? That's how you could start a conversation in case you don't know how. Okay? These are the people that we're supposed to talk to. Jesus says, listen, you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Sometimes the fish actually jump into the boat. Okay? And we ought to take care of those fish when they do. Okay? We ought to be able to visit with them and meet with them and get to know them. There was a, a number of years ago, my family visited another local church here in this community, a small church, about 100 people in that church. We're a family of 10, okay? We stand out a little bit. I don't know if you met my wife, but uh, wallflower she is not, okay? okay? So we are loud, we are slightly unkept, and uh, we are very clear, to, it's very obvious that when we show up, I'll tell you, we were at that church, we arrived early, uh, stayed late, and not a single person greeted us. Not one, not one. That cannot be amongst God's people. It can't be. We have no idea of the spiritual condition of the people that walk into our, what, what, what brought that visitor? What brought that guest? We have no idea. Let's find out. We might just have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Maybe you take them out to lunch. Maybe you go out for coffee. And for those of you who are objecting in your mind, well, I, you know, that's awkward for me. Uh, you know, I'm an introvert. Can, can I just, I just think that's nonsense, to be honest. I love you, that's stupid, okay? <laughs> You're a Christian, that's what you are. Do not identify, I'm an extrovert, I'm an introvert, I'm this and that. No, you are a follower of Christ, and as far as I know, Christ left heaven to come get you. Christ pursues people like you, and you are on his mission. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, and so I don't care what your personality is, you are called to love people like God loved you in Jesus. You are called to pursue people like God did with you. So are you looking? Redeem the time. Are you looking? There's something magical when you're teaching a kid to catch a baseball. Um, they all start out catching the baseball underhand, which is not how to catch a baseball. And so when you catch a baseball underhand, you catch about 10% of the baseballs. The other 90% kind of bounce off the young person's head, okay? It's not a good way to catch a baseball. Something wonderful happens when they, when they get the courage to turn their hand up. The catch rate skyrockets. They go from like 10% to 60% almost immediately. It's something beautiful and wonderful. I think we should have our hands up looking for evangelistic opportunities, looking for opportunities to meet with people and to visit with people and God, God willing to walk through an open door if he creates it. I think that's a thrilling way to live. 
whatever happens today, whether it's planned or detoured, God might give, be giving you an opportunity. As one pastor put it, there's never a dull moment for the Christian who is radically devoted to purchasing of life's moments for eternity. Many of you will have these opportunities at work. Many of your interactions with non-believers will be at work. Let me uh, commend to you the book, The Gospel at Work by Sebastian Traeger. Very practical tips on how to share Christ at work. He says, let's just give, me, give you a couple, do good work, he says, that commends Christ and uh, your character. Bring Christ into your conversation. Let people know you're a Christian. Let them know what you did at church. And what do you do this weekend? Uh, well, you know, I kept nursery, right? Uh, which is a good work, by the way. I kept nursery so tired moms could come and worship Jesus. That's what I did, right? I planted a church this Sunday. That's what I did, right? Okay, bring, bring it into your conversation. They're going to ask you about your life. Tell them, ask, can I pray for you? Build relationships, invite them for lunch. Find a common hobby. Use the witness of the church, right? right? Maybe your community group has a barbecue. You should invite non-believers to that. Maybe you go to lunch with another member of the church, but you invite a coworker to join you. Right? You buy these opportunities up. In fact, Paul tells us how we can. In fact, he gives us four ways, and I'll be extremely brief here, how to buy up these opportunities. Um, note verse 5, he says, conduct yourself wisely towards outsiders. So this is going to require wisdom. How it is we become all things to all men without compromising the truth, compromising our righteousness. How, how is it that we can be both confident and humble? I think that requires wisdom. Conduct yourself, have a wise conduct. Secondly, we're to have gracious words. For he says in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. Your words should be kind. Your words should always be gracious. You should have gracious words. And, and some of you are very passionate people. Can I tell you it is possible to support the right position in a wrong way? Does that make sense to you? You could be right on what you affirm but you can affirm it in a way that is off-putting. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of social media, okay? I hear it's all the rage, okay? Listen, is that a place where gracious words abound? Okay? Is that a place where we respect people of contrary positions? Christian, winning an argument is not as important as you think. It is not. Your reputation for Jesus is far more important. So be careful how you speak about people in sin how you speak about people outside the faith, remembering how Christ spoke of them, how he was quick to defend them. We should not be quick to tear them down. Thirdly, we should have a seasoned speech. Wise conduct, gracious witness, seasoned speech. Note verse 6, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Right? You need to have salty speech. Okay? That doesn't mean you get a cuss. Okay? We're not swearing like sailors here. Right? What does he mean? Salty speech. It's a Jewish idiom that simply means Keep things interesting. Keep them thought-provoking. You like salt? Right? French fries? Anyone? Sunflower seeds? Watermelon? Right? You like salt? It's delicious. Try it. Okay? You ever have popcorn without salt? It is totally useless, isn't it? You know? <laughs> popcorn is a salt delivery device. There is nothing, no other role for it. Okay? We like salt. Okay? Put salt on your words. When you talk about Christ, you talk about the Christian life, do so in a way that is appetizing. It's not bland. It's not dull. The best way to get other people to delight in Christ is, is when you delight in Jesus. So if you haven't enjoyed Jesus today, then the opportunity actually comes to commend Jesus. It's going to come up dull and boring. So we should never be bored 
about Christ. Again, I appreciate what one pastor exhorted when he said the best way to start being an evangelist is to be happy in Christ. Every day we should go to the Bible and find reasons why Christ is the greatest thing in the world. And when we get up off our knees with our hearts happy in him, we, we will be in the best position to make our speech appetizing for Christ. Lastly, we are to have a ready answer, aren't we? We end verse 6 in the passage before us. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He assumes, of course, you'll have a relationship with the outsiders here. That assumes that they might ask you about your faith. Why, 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 why do you go to Ghana or Guatemala as we sometimes do? Right? Why, why did you adopt that child? Why, why, why do you go to this thing called community group that you talk about? Why in the world did you plant a church? You'll be ready to give an answer. Are you ready? Are you ready for what's to happen this afternoon and who you might run into? Today we, we send out 28 members of our church. Not simply so there could be another church, but so that there will be a community of followers of Jesus Christ who delight to make disciples. And so I tell you, Lovettsville Baptist Church, and I tell you, Hamilton Baptist Church, will you pray that God would open a door for the word, for the mystery of Christ, and that we might be ready to make it clear. Let's pray for that even now, shall we? Father in heaven, we're thankful for the encouragement that your truth is for us. It's a bit of a challenge, there is no doubt. But I think if we actually give ourselves to it, it is a, indeed an exciting way to live. Will you help us to care maybe a little less about what people think about us and care far more about what they think about you? Would that, would that occupy our hearts in a higher position? And we pray for both our churches, that you would indeed be pleased to open doors in response to the faithful prayers of your people. And that you would give us the strength and the courage and the clarity to walk through them. That we might declare the mystery of Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.